0: over here. All right. So um, yeah, I'm excited about our message today. We've been in this series uh, called A Church That Unites Diverse People. Um, Let's ask God to open our, our minds, our hearts to what he wants to say to us today. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for the beauty of being able to see your grace expressed through baptism. And so we rejoice in that. And we thank you, God, for this journey that you are taking our church on and challenging us with, this vision of being a church that unites diverse people, and I pray that you would continue to speak to all of us here, Uh, whether we're just new to the faith or whether we've been a long time walking with you, God. I believe you have something to say to us today, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, if you're just joining us, uh, we have been in this message series where we've been exploring uh, the uh, the book of Acts, which... Uh, it tells the, the story of the formation of the early church. And we've been asking this question of, you know, what does this story have to say to us? How does it maybe inform our imagination and our convictions about what, about what the church is meant to be today? What the church what, What's our calling as a church and as a community today? And as we've been reading this story... Um, Our conclusion is this, that Acts gives us the foundation and the vision to say that we are called to be a church that unites diverse people, and that this is a vision that is reiterated and reaffirmed in the pages of the New Testament, as well as echoed and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And it all starts in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's kind of the beginning and the the genesis of this journey that the church takes. And Acts 1 says this, but this is Jesus speaking to his followers after he had risen from the dead. And he says to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so when the first disciples heard this challenge... I think they probably heard it as a geographical challenge because they were situated in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria were the surrounding areas and then the ends of the earth are really far, far away. And so he probably thought, okay, the Spirit's going to take us to really far away lands. But Jesus' primary concern as he gives this vision is not so much a geographical challenge as it is a people challenge. That Jesus' point was not so much like where the places that you'll go It's the people that you will encounter and meet along the way. That is my heart. And as you go to these places, you're going to meet unexpected people, and I want you to tell them as well about who I am and that I love them, and I want them to join my family. And so Acts chapter 10 is the part of the early church's journey in which this vision really kind of, comes into reality. Because up until this point, I don't know if you've noticed this, up until this point, with really one exception, all the converts to the Christian movement are what? What ethnicity are they? They're Jews. This has largely been a movement among Jewish people. Jewish people becoming converted and saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, I will follow him. With one exception, though. You guys remember what that would be? In Acts chapter 8, who do we see comes to faith? An unexpected person comes to faith. It's the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And so God sends Philip to, to share the message of God's love with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he, he comes to faith. And so up until this point, you, when you think of the church, really you really should think of kind of a, a largely, ethnically speaking, a pretty homogeneous community. And then there's like you know, uh, Phil, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't know his name, right? And so Acts 10 signals a major shift. So let's read what happens. It's kind of small, but that's okay. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. Peter, of course, is the leader of this new Christian movement, right? He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So this story focuses on a man named Cornelius who is a centurion. So what that means is an Italian regiment consisted of about 600 soldiers. Uh, a century considered, uh, consisted of 100 soldiers. So the Cornelius kind of oversees a group of 100 soldiers. But what's significant about Cornelius is not that he's a soldier so much as it's the fact that he is Roman, right? He is non-Jewish. And yet he, 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 he has faith in God, and he's trying his best based on the knowledge that he has of God to worship God. And so he's a good man. Now, if you know this story you know that by the end of it, Cornelius actually places his faith in Jesus. He becomes a Christ follower. But this story isn't just about Cornelius. Because if you look at this kind of text, what does it say? What does the angel tell Cornelius to do? He tells him, go and find this guy named Peter. God could have just as easily, right? I mean, he's already speaking to Cornelius in a vision through an angel. Why not just kind of give the full presentation there and let Cornelius find out about who God is through Jesus? But instead, he stops short, and he says, I want you to go find a guy named Peter. And what we see in this whole narrative is that conversion is a two-way, two-way street. Because God had something in mind for Cornelius, yes, and he also had something in mind for Peter. There were two conversions that God wants to do in the life of Cornelius as well as the life of Peter. And I think this is really, really important to note because often Christians, we have gotten into trouble when we take a paternalistic view when it comes to uh, things like mission and witness and things like that. When we take the view that, you know, I have something and you don't, I am the giver and you're the receiver. I have God and you do not. That easily leads, you know, to a sense of hubris, a sense of arrogance and pride. I'm the giver, you're the receiver, and it becomes this hierarchy. But what God often does is he kind of blows that apart. And the act of following Jesus, the lines between giver and receiver are often blurred. They actually become equal. Or another way to think of it is this. That really God is the ultimate giver. And both parties, both parties have something to receive from God. And that's what we'll see in this passage. God has something to say to Cornelius just as much as he has something to say to Peter. You know, in last week we had heard about Houston Welcome Refugees uh, and the incredible work that they're doing to welcome the refugees that are coming to Houston. Uh, And it's I think it's tempting with something like this to think, "Okay, y'all I'll sign up for that orientation because I want to help refugees," and quite certainly, their plight, refugees' plight, is dire. There are real needs and real trauma that they're experiencing, and yet it's not just a one-way street, because in giving, in showing up, and loving, it's you know I think those you know those those of us who have experienced that know that in the giving there is something to be received just as profoundly as well, All right? So if you, if you sign up for that orientation, I encourage you to do so. Um, remember this, it's, there's something for you to be received from God as well. And so now we come to Peter. While Pe- Cornelius is getting these visions from God, so is Peter. Let's see what happens. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the Centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Uh, have any of y'all ever dreamed about food? Yeah, you can raise. Don't be. Don't be ashamed. It's okay. I have many. Yeah, a lot of us. Right? We're hungry. Have you ever had a nightmare about food? Right? One of those. Those kind of nightmares where like the food is just amazing and you can smell it, but for some reason you're dreaming like you can't eat it. Have any of us ever had that experience? Yeah, all right, Cassie. I can tell you think about food a lot, all right. So Peter's experience in Acts 10 kind of borders on the fence of dream and nightmare. Because in this vision, God calls him to do something he never would have thought to do. God shows him this variety of animals and tells Peter to kill and eat. And we, most of us would know that Jewish people had these regulations, these laws around the types of foods that they could eat. There were dietary restrictions that are like very specifically spelled out in Leviticus. And there was food that was clean and unclean. And to eat uh, what was unclean would defile a person, would make them ceremoniously, ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. And so this vision is about food, yes, but it is also about so much more than food. Because food is the portal to people. Food is the passageway to culture and to relationships, right? If you want to get to know someone, you sit down with them over a meal, And you share drink and food and you share stories. You laugh and you cry. And that's how you get to know someone. That's how you build trust. That's how you build relationships. And so the conundrum is that Gentiles, right, non-Jewish people, ate foods that Jewish people were prohibited from eating. And so you'll note that it was okay for Jewish people to allow Gentile people into their house. But the reverse was not true. It was not okay for a Jewish person to go into the house of a Gentile and eat the food that was placed before them. Because who knows what they would serve. It might have been served to idols, it might make them unclean. And so there was this kind of wall. I can't eat your food, I can't commune with you. And so over time, interestingly, what happens is that food becomes a proxy for something much larger. Your food is unclean becomes, you are unclean. We humans have this tendency go, to go from like specific to general. Right? We take specific data points and then we generalize. And it helps us to make sense of the world because there's just too much data to take, it, take in. But the downside of this is that it can lead inadvertently to shorthand ways of thinking of whole groups of people, which in the very least leads to stereotypes but at its worst leads to flat-out bigotry and racism. So Peter has this dream, and it happens how many times? Three times, which is interesting to note because Peter is no stranger to things happening to him in, in triplets, right? He had denied Jesus three times, and the rooster had crowed three times. At his reinstatement, Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And so now three times he has this vision, because I think Peter was obstinate, he was brash, he was passionate, and he was hard-headed. And it took a while for this to get into his mind and into his heart, because his whole life has been operating with this paradigm, clean, unclean. But God was converting Peter as well, and he was about to transform his paradigms. So the next day, Peter started out with the men who had come to him. And some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So he's really excited, like, what's going to happen? And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. And while talking with him, Peter went inside And found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anything impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Wow, how cool is that? Peter experiences a major paradigm shift. In his existing paradigm, the world was separated into good and evil, clean, unclean holy, unholy. There's good food and there's bad food. And a good Jew, a devout Jew, will stay away from the bad stuff. But as we've already talked about, this paradigm wasn't exclusive to food. And in the same way that he saw certain foods as unclean, he had begun to see certain people as unclean. There are the Jews, God's people, and then there are the rest, non-Jews. Gentiles, the Ethiopian eunuch, the Roman centurion. God's people stay away from the rest, or we keep them at arm's length. But God was showing Peter that he shouldn't call anyone impure or unclean. And so Peter comes upon this realization that upends his worldview, that in Jesus, God was forming a new people, a new humanity joined that together, joined together former enemies that brought together people who were far away and across the divide. He brought together Jew and Gentile and that this new humanity would be called the church. God was breaking down walls and he was breaking down boundaries that separated people from one another. We protect boundaries really well, don't we? When you go to Costco, there's someone at the door whose sole job it is to check your ID. And if you don't have your idea, ID, you can't go in. Although in recent times, I feel like they've been more lax. Or unless you're going in for a hot dog, then you don't need an ID, right? When you go to the gym, you have to show your idea because gyms are meant to be exclusive. This is for our members only. This experience is for us only. This good news is just for us. It makes us special. It makes us unique. And so I'm going to hold it tight. But God was showing Peter and he's showing us that this gospel is for all. And in order to just put an exclamation point on it, in order to really uh, affirm or to dispel any doubts about this, because again, we, we have the benefit of experiencing this, But at the time, this is really a radical idea. And so in order to really confirm and authenticate what is happening, this happens. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues or languages and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Does Acts 10 sound a little bit like another chapter that we read earlier? It does, right? Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising in God. And so just as in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God came rushing down on those first Jewish converts, the Spirit now comes rushing down upon these Gentile believers, a very different group of people but the same Spirit. And just as that eunuch was baptized and Saul was baptized, the centurion's whole household is baptized. Just as we witness Vincent, you know, East A- an East Asian guy, get baptized today. Very different groups of people, but same baptism. And so in this remarkable story, paradigms are transformed. God's love for some becomes God's love for all. God's spirit given to a few becomes God's spirit given generously to all. Baptism restricted to Jews only becomes a baptism inclusive of Jew and Gentile alike. This paradigm shift would be echoed over and over again in the New Testament. And it would be articulated in eloquent words such as this in Ephesians 4.4 when Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and in all. Hey, let's say that together as a church. Let's declare this new reality. Let's say this together. Ready? There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and in all. So there are two uh, application points I want to draw out from what we've heard today. The first is that there are two conversions, right? Cornelius's and Peter's. Most of us, we think of conversion as like this singular and past tense event. You know, I was converted or it happened when I was eight years old. It happened when I was in high school or it happened when I was in college. But Peter is converted after he had already started following Jesus. And I want to suggest that our spiritual lives are a series of conversions. Peter was the leader of the Christian movement. And up until this point, he did not understand that Christianity was for more than Jewish people. He didn't get that part. It took a conversion. And I think as I've thought about my own journey, as, I've heard, you know, as I hear other people's stories and journeys... I see that many of us often experience different conversions along the way and the pathway, the journey of our faith. Uh, The conversion of, you know, advancing my own agenda. Yeah, I believe in God and Christ, but I have my plans. I have my ambitions. And the conversion of saying, you know what? God, not my will, but yours be done. I want to obey you. I don't want to submit to you. Uh, The conversion of working To be loved by God. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, God loved me and his grace and all that stuff, but gosh, I have to try really hard. I have to be good enough for God to love me. And then slowly that conversion of really receiving our identity as God's beloved. Uh, There's the conversion for us as a community that, you know, I'm looking for a church that meets my needs, that I like, that I feel good, good about. And it's all about really like me, right? Or my family. And there's a conversion in which God says, you know, it's not about your comfort. It's not about having a church that's really comfortable. It's about finding a church that's joining me on my mission, right? And and I want to join that. And so there are different conversions that all of us need to experience. And maybe at an intuitive level, that makes a lot of sense, the reality is that most of us are very resistant to change any type of conversion involves change and change is hard it pushes us out of our safe zone it feels uncomfortable it feels unknown so my question is in your spiritual journey how might god still be inviting you and me to experience conversion and the second point is this Uh, for many decades, churches operated under a prevailing paradigm of church ministry based on what was called the homogeneous unit principle. Right? That's kind of like a fancy theological speak. But HUP all right, basically stated that churches were most likely to grow by trying to reach out to groups of people within the same network. Okay? So a homogeneous unit is a section of society in which all members share a common characteristic. And when applied to church growth, it was saying that, you know, most people don't want to cross boundaries as they pursue Christ. So plant churches, plant ministries within one network, cowboys, or like young millennial hipsters, or Chinese immigrants, or Africans, or whatever it might be, because that's the easiest way for the church to grow. And certainly, as a strategy, it works to some extent. In my own experience in church, I have often been a part of homogeneous churches, and I've benefited from them. But H-U-P, or this principle, becomes dangerous, and I would say it becomes anti-gospel when it becomes an excuse to exclude people. Certain groups of people, certain types of people. I would argue that this idea can often and actually stifle our discipleship. Because we begin to think that God just works like this. God only sings these songs. God is only preached in this way. And it blinds us. It really kind of keeps us from seeing the myriad of ways in which God works. And so I think Acts 10 and the whole book of Acts challenges us to think bigger. It challenges us to think wider and more deeply. It challenges us to ask the question, who are we intentionally or unintentionally communicating to keep out? You don't welcome here. You're not welcome here. You don't belong here. And that can be said with words. It can be said with strange looks. It could be said through our structures. And so for us as a church, as we grapple with this vision of being a church that unites diverse people, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us to live in light of Acts 10? So please don't get me wrong. I am not dogging on uh, immigrant churches or Cut the Cowboy Church, but I think all of our churches Need to wrestle with the question, what does it look like for us to wrestle with this reality that God, even though it was maybe not as efficient, sent Cornelius to sent to Peter to kind of have this really crazy meetup, right, that crossed the boundary, that crossed relationships and racial and ethnic divides. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? And so who are the unlikely, unexpected people that God is challenging us to bear witness to, to include in our community and fellowship, to share a meal with? These are some of the questions I want us to wrestle with and continue to uh, reflect upon, right? Um, When your life did helping someone end up impacting you? Think about a time when you had a significant paradigm shift. How did it affect you? And how did it affect others? Because what we see is this paradigm shift wasn't just for Peter, It wasn't just for, for, oh yeah, yeah, it wasn't just for Peter, it was actually for the whole church. If conversion happens throughout our journeys, how might God still be inviting you to experience conversion? Do you sense any internal resistance? And then the last one is just really practical. You know, is there someone unlikely or unexpected that you and I can invite to share a meal with? I was thinking about that on the way here. I'm like, oh, yeah, actually, there's a lot of people that I interact with. I just haven't thought to, like, take that next step and be like, hey, you want to grab some coffee or something? Okay, so we've talked about a lot of things. I want to give us some space to interact with these questions, to reflect on these questions, to actually share some conversation. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite us just to find maybe two or three people sitting next to you and just have uh, a brief moment uh, of conversation with one another. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the amazing ways that we got to witness how you've worked in someone's story and the amazing ways in which you worked in Cornelius' story and Peter's story. And I, I just pray that it would, re, it would remind us and awaken us to the reality that you are still at work. You're at work in us individually and you're work at work in our church. And I pray that your spirit would guide us to kind of grapple with and chew on the things that you're saying to us, God. Yeah, so Lord, I pray that you would continue to lead our time of conversation and reflection. Lord. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so go ahead, and I'm going to give you about four or five minutes to just have some conversation with one another. If you don't feel comfortable sharing, that's okay. You could pass. You could just listen in. But let's make sure everyone has a group that is, you know, sitting here, and uh, let's go ahead and talk for about four or five minutes.